There's not so much to say at this point in the retreat. It is said that the Buddha proclaimed the Dharma for 50 years. And when asked for the key to his teachings by his disciple, Mahakasapa, he replied, from beginning to end, I have not proclaimed a single word. He held up a flower and his disciple smiled. I've been thinking about this story, reflecting about it, reflecting on why did the disciple smile. So I thought he was happy sitting with his beloved teacher, the Buddha, or he had some insight which arose on seeing the flower. Some joy came, some understanding maybe, maybe some gratitude. Many of you have talked about gratitude the last number of days. And as I was reflecting on this one day, I was in the teacher room. Somebody brought their grandchild in. And it made me remember my daughter when she was a baby that when she would pass gas, she would smile. (laughs) And I realized, I didn't know why the disciple smiled. (laughs) But it's a mystery. And I'd like to speak a little tonight about mystery. Please pass this. Thank you. To enter into spiritual life, maybe just to enter into life itself, is to enter into a mystery. The mystery of life. The mystery of birth. The mystery of death mystery of having a body and a heart and a mind. So I would like to speak about this, again reflect with you, and see what we discover tonight. The San Francisco Examiner sometimes provides some very uh, important Dharma material. This is from an article uh, out of Washington, D.C. They said, In what the Acoustical Society of America termed an astounding discovery, scientists are reporting that some frogs talk through their ears. It's true. UCLA researchers found that frogs use their ears as boomboxes and loudspeakers to amplify and broadcast plaintive croaks and ribbits. (laughs) This is true. 
they said scientists previously assumed that the frogs had just used their vocal sac. Now here's the important line. Nobody bothered to check. (laughs) Just think about all the things we haven't checked on. Really. Because in some way, that's what we're doing here in practice. We're checking on the things we assume. And we assume a lot. We think we know what's going to happen. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that even coming to this retreat, you thought you knew what was going to happen? And, you know, on a certain level, we all knew what was going to happen, right? We're going to sit and walk and sit and walk and eat and sit and walk. There'll be an interview and a talk and instruction. But could you have known what, hap- what was really going to happen here? What your lived experience has been here moment by moment by moment. We assume quite a bit about how we should be or how we shouldn't be or how other people should be or shouldn't be or how a place should be or how the teacher should be or how the teaching or the food. We make a lot of assumptions about life, about the weather. I mean, it's been just extraordinary weather, I felt. And uh, I know when I got here, Lynn said, Oh, the forecast is horrible. It's going to rain every day. There was some forecast. They were telling us what was going to happen. It's so nice to know that people don't really know. <laughs> There's a little story about this, I'll tell you. It's a Jewish story. It's from the Jewish tradition. It's about a rabbi in Russia, 1700s, little village. He born in the village, grew up in the village. 40 years since he was a boy. Every day he gets up, he walks across the village, he goes to his synagogue, pray and be with the community. One morning he's walking across and there's a Cossack in the village. Also born in the village, grew up in the village, he knows the rabbi, seen the rabbi walk across the village every morning. He says to him, where are you going, rabbi? Rabbi says, don't know. (laughs) The Cossack somehow feels a little disrespected, like the, the rabbi's putting him on in some way. He's dissing him. So he gets angry. He says, hey, don't give me that kind of crap. Come here. You know where you're going. You know what's doing. Come with me. And he grabs him. He takes him. takes him to the little jail. He opens the door, puts him in. He's about to shut the door. The rabbi says, you see? You don't know. <laughs> It's so hard to believe we don't actually know what's going to happen in the next moment. Do you remember, this is, I was reflecting on this talk, I thought I remembered being a child. I really remembered the time when I thought adults knew. Do you remember that? When adults, like they knew. And it was such a great feeling to think that somebody knew. 
And now, guess what? <laughs> We're the adults. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty interesting. <laughs> now, the interesting piece here about this known and unknown is that it can be a real support for our practice that we don't know. <clears throat> In fact, there's a whole book written about it. It's actually uh, my favorite book that I've never read. It's called Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti. And I love the title. I love this title, Freedom from the Known. And I love the title so much, I didn't even want to know what he said about it. (laughs) I I really got it in the title. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm kidding about this, but actually I'm really pointing at something. There's a way we create reality by knowing things. We fixate reality. We objectify and reify reality. When reality is never fixed or objectified or reified. As you've seen in all these moments, was there one moment you could hold on to or fix Even the best insight you had or the most wondrous sitting, you can't keep it. It's not an object. It's not a fixed thing. Mm. So there's another book title that really points, I'll just say it, it's from Alan Watts. It's The Wisdom of Insecurity. That actually letting go of this fixing of reality has a great wisdom to it. And it's not insecurity that we find wisdom. It's in the insecurity, in the insubstantiality of things. And so we can acknowledge that we don't know what's going to happen. I don't, you know, what I'm even going to say next. Or who's going to win the Super Bowl? We don't know. Most of us don't care because the Niners aren't in it, but we don't know. Or the weather. We didn't know the weather. Or our meditation. We don't know what's going to happen in our lives. And it's scary a little to really open to that reality. It's like, it's much more comforting to think we do know what's going to happen. It's also much more exciting to not know what's going to happen. So it has its pluses and minuses. So the doorway to this, which we've been talking about and stressing is one of the themes in this retreat, is not taking things for granted. Not pretending that we know things as they appear fresh in each moment not veiling them with our memory, but really opening to the aliveness and the immediacy that's here, moment by moment. Letting go of our attachment to our beliefs, our views, our opinions, our knowing, to our conceptualizations of the world, 
to our self. <clears throat> now there's a little caveat here that especially in the Zen tradition they like to mention. They put it this way. They say, not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. Okay? This is, I like this one. Not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. doesn't mean I don't know I'm Eugene. I don't know which house to go home to when I go home tomorrow. But it means I can let go of the attachment to Eugene to see who's Eugene in this moment or who are you in this moment right now. Feel this person, this breath, this body, this heart, this mind. So I'd like to explore a little this sense of not knowing, of mystery with you and a few other themes in practice by telling you a story. And it's a Zen story. Uh, and what I'd like to do is talk about it. Uh, I'll, I'll read you the whole story and then I'll give you my commentary about it. I'm going to pull out some of the themes in the story that I think are relevant to our practice. The story goes like this. Zen master Setsugin told his student Jijo, if you meditate single-mindedly without interruption for seven days and nights and still do not attain realization, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night soil scoop. (laughs) Not long after that... Jijo came down with a case of dysentery. Taking a bucket to a secluded place, he sat on it and held his attention in right mindfulness. When he had sat on the bucket for seven straight days, one night he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight, and he felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. He had been absorbed in this state for a long time when he was startled into self-awareness on hearing a sound. He found his whole body running with sweat and his sickness had disappeared. In celebration, he wrote this verse. Radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. That's my uh, story. Story, I I love this story. I really like it. I remember I I was really excited when I first found this story in the Zen book. And I was at a little teacher meeting with uh, my friends Wes and Tara and I said, I have this great story, great Dharma story. And I told them the story, and they kind of looked at me like... <laughs> and, uh, and I realized that the story is not everybody's story. Everybody doesn't <laughs> love this story. And that's okay. You don't have to love this story. There's one of the things that's beautiful about the Dharma is there's room for everybody. Some people are frog and toad story people. 
some people are Satsugan and Jijo story people. Okay. So the first theme that I'd like to talk about in this story, it takes place between Satsugan and Jijo. And almost all the great Zen teaching stories, the koans and teaching stories that there are in Zen practice, are about relationship. They, be, they begin with this relationship between people and lead to realization. We don't do this alone. We don't practice alone. We don't suffer alone. We don't awaken alone. And the Buddha really pointed to this in a very small list. It's called the Patihariya. It's the list of, uh, it's called the Three Marvels, the Three uh, Miracles ascribed to a Buddha. And I'll just simply name them. The first one is really the miracle of magic. And it's, they talk about people um, walking on water, walking through walls, floating in the air. Sometimes they talk about, the second one is the miracle of mind reading. That a Buddha can know what's in the mind, if the mind's open or closed or tight or uh, relaxed or liberated or contracted, attached. And as the people talk to the Buddha about these two marvels, he basically says, these are no big deal. These are really, these are like tricks. He said the real marvel that is really amazing is the marvel that we learn one from another. That the teachings are passed person to person. And you have entered this stream of these teachings being passed now for 2,500 years, people just like us, men and women, sitting, practicing, suffering, uh, bringing their sincerity, their yearning, their love of truth, dharma, understanding. That's how these teachings have come here today, person to person to person. And so when I think of this relationship, I think of it about us, and I think of the 2,500 years of people that we're connected to in this lineage. Sitting in caves, sitting in the forest, sitting in big monasteries in Asia, sitting at the Fairfax Community Church 10 years ago. I hope you can sense the personalness of this. It's not an abstract. There were real people who sat and walked and studied and struggled, just like you, just like me. And also, another aspect that I've reflected on in terms of relationship and the Buddha is the Buddha had an incredible relationship with the earth itself. If you read the scriptures, his whole practice and life as a teacher takes place on the earth. And that he's uh, 
awakened under a tree. He's born under a tree, actually awakened under a tree. He dies under the trees. And the earth is um, always acknowledging his awakening um, with rain and flower petals. When he gives the um, instructions for mindfulness, he says, go to sit at the root of a tree. And I love that that relationship is so woven in to the practice. I love that Spirit Rock is divided up like this. And my mind, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess my delusion here a little, my mind said, oh, I don't want it to be divided up. I, I like it when it's all in one place and cozy, and I can get really quickly from my room to the kitchen to the meditation hall. That's what my mind said. And especially with the weather, before I came here, I thought, oh no, it's going to rain. And This is my mind. It's just a mind. This is what minds do. But then being here, the lived experience, I have loved, you know, even on the crutches and whatever, being able to go in and out of nature like this, to walk out and see the stars, or the, and even the rain, or the frost, I mean, it's just been magical, a true miracle. So the relationship to the earth is an important part of our practice. Also, there's another relationship I I like to mention that I think is really vital, which is the Buddha's relationship to Mara. Um, If you don't know who Mara is, Mara is the evil one in Buddhist mythology. Mara is the tempter. Mara is who comes to tempt the uh, Buddha on the night of his enlightenment and seduce him or scare him every way. comes in a myriad forms, all of which you've seen here over the last number of days. Mara's come. Mara's come to you at different times and said, don't feel this or, you know, scary. Some people have said they've seen demons come. That, that happens. Um, and... And the Buddha sat and said, I see you, Mara. And Mara lost. The Buddha was awakened. Actually, I want to just mention the last thing that Mara did in the penultimate moment before the Buddha was awakened was Mara comes and says, what right do you have to be awakened? Mara comes as judgment. Really, it's very interesting. It's this kind of critical voice saying, well, who are you? What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? And the Buddha touches the earth, his relationship with the earth, to acknowledge his right to be here. And actually, it's a sitting mudra. You can sit with your hand touching the ground sometimes. It's a lovely posture to sit in, to acknowledge your right to be here, to have whatever experience you're having, and stay present with it. Now, the real, another a added reason why I really like to talk about his relationship to Mara, which I find really interesting in the mythology of Buddhism, is Mara doesn't stop after the Buddha's enlightened. Mara keeps coming throughout the Buddha's life after he's enlightened. It said he spent 45 years living in nirvana. Mara kept coming. And the Buddha would do the same practice. Mara would come, and the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. And in the scriptures it would say, 
Myra says to himself, he says, the blessed one sees me, and Myra would slink away. The Buddha is simply mindful of Myra. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't make fun of him. He doesn't deny him. He simply says, I see you, Myra. And so if you happen to have come to final nirvana here, you know, reached enlightenment, which you may have, Mara is still going to come tomorrow. Don't expect Mara to go away. Mara is part of what we pay attention to in our lives as human beings, enlightened or unenlightened. It points us to that awakening, illumination, enlightenment is not some fixed state like retired enlightenment. <laughs> it's a living reality, moment by moment. A moment of awakening is a moment of awakening. So the first theme is the relationship theme. The second theme, the reason I really like this story, Satsugan is quite bold. He says, if you, do, if you sit in right mindfulness for seven days and nights and don't realize nirvana, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night soil scoop. That's quite a bold statement by Satsugan. And I appreciate that because he's really pointing to a kind of passion in practice, a fierceness in practice. And it's not, let's put it this way, it's right in the teachings of the Buddha, this passion. The Buddha opens the teaching on mindfulness. He says, how do we practice? We practice ardent, mindful, and fully aware. And then he gives all the foundations that we've talked about. So how do we sit with something? Ardent, mindful, and fully aware. Fully aware means with clear comprehension. Mindful means mindful. Ardent. I've read this sutta many times before I really realized this word ardent has to do with passion, fire, ardor, love of practice. That you practice with your love, your whole being. In the Jewish tradition, I forget how they say it, but it's something to the fact there's a prayer where they say, you should love the Lord your God with all your body and all your soul and all your might. That's ardent practice. Practice ardently. Give yourself fully. Ardent also points us to words like um, excitement, rapture, zeal, affection, love, devotion, faith. Sometimes people come to Vipassana and they think it's kind of dry. 
I don't find it that way. There's a place for my heart right in the sitting practice. Can I be with this experience fully? Can I open to it fully? Whatever it is. And when I was reflecting on this sense of passion in practice, (coughs) devoutness even, really passionate, I was thinking about the word passion. And originally the word passion always had to do with suffering. It referred to the suffering of Christ. It was called the passion of Christ. So it's just a nice connection that our suffering is part of our passion. It's really what our passion comes out of. The passion to see who and what we are and what is this amazing world. What are these moments? I think there's also a bigger sense of how to reflect on this, and this is more the sense of what Joseph Campbell would call follow your bliss, follow your heart. Jack Cornfield would say, find a path with heart. It actually doesn't matter what path it is, but to give your heart to it. And this passion can look many, many different ways in our lives. Like this story is one that I have some passion for. It may not be a story that you have passion for. That's not the point. Some people find their passion in sports or athletics. Some people find it in music. Some people in art. Some people in history or gardening or scholarship or in serving others. Part of this practice is to discover how does the Dharma wish to express itself through you? And that only comes with connecting with your passion, with your heart, with what moves you. I once wrote a line. This is the only, I've written two lines that I like. I told you one already in the last talk. Here's the other one. Buddha became the Buddha by being Buddha. He didn't try to become Rama or Krishna, who were some of the archetypes of his time. He did it by being himself all the way until he really knew the truth of who he was. And we each have to follow that journey to see who are we all the way. And we do that through our heart, through ardent practice. It can look any which way. And however many people, 50-some people we have here, that's how many ways it looks. One of my favorites, again, somebody who speaks to me, kind of a rogue Zen master, EQ, he says, 
Rinzai's disciples never got the Zen message, but I, the blind donkey, know the truth. Love play can make you immortal. The autumn breeze of a single night of love is better than a hundred thousand years of sterile sitting meditation. (laughs) It doesn't just look like this, okay? (laughs) Or Ryokan, another of my really loves in the Zen lineage, he said, near the end of his life, he said, what is the heart of this old monk like? A gentle wind beneath a vast sky. It looks many different ways. This expression of the Dharma, this expression of the truth that each of us is. So Jijo, back to our story, came down with a case of dysentery. I happen to like this part of the story. (laughs) I like it because it gets down to the basics. They always have that phrase in Zen, they say, no part left out. And uh, I've had dysentery in Asia. It's quite an experience. It's probably some 20-some years ago that I had dysentery in Nepal. And uh, although I wasn't quite as dedicated as Jijo, I did spend a number of hours in right mindfulness on a bucket. And that's what you do when you have dysentery in Asia. And I I actually didn't know how to treat myself too well at the time. And the reason why I think this piece is important is because, first of all, we have bodies, and our bodies get sick. That's true. And we all know this. In terms of practice, it's humbling to really see that our bodies are temporal. It's humbling. You know the moment when something's wrong? Like you just even, you just get a fever. All of a sudden, your whole world changes. It's quite humbling. And although I don't wish illness on anybody of any kind, it's good to be humbled. I think humility in practice is very important. And I associate three words in my mind. They actually don't go together, really, but I like to think that they do, which is humble, humus, and Hamish. Okay? (laughs) So humble we know, you know. Humus is of earth, basically. Hamish is a Yiddish word. It's a compliment that you give to someone if they're of the earth, if they don't put on pretensions, if they're not grand, they're... They're approachable. They're human in a very good way. You say, oh, they're, they're a Hamish person. And there's a song that actually um, points to this that my daughter used to sing quite a bit. It's from the uh, Quaker tradition. Tis a gift to be simple, 
Tis a gift to be free. Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place that is right, we will be in the valley of love and delight. That there's something good when we're humble, that when we're grandiose, it's actually a certain kind of suffering, blown up, out of proportion, not in harmony with the truth, that we are humble, that we are vulnerable. I believe that coming into direct contact with our fragility, with our vulnerability, is a gateway to awakening. It's not a bad thing. That it's a doorway, it's a dharma gate to let go of the known, to let go of the fixation of life, of reality, and enter into the magic to the mystery, to this moment. I'll tell you just one story, experience I had. I, for many years, still, I'm, I've been associated with the Zen Hospice Project, and I've worked as a volunteer, and I've trained volunteers, and now I lead a sitting group there. And it's a wonderful organization, a great sangha of mind. Wonderful. Um, and this was early on at the beginning. I was doing some hospice work. I kind of snuck in the back door of hospice. I talked my way in, actually, without getting any training. And I'd done a little work with people. And then they sent me, they said they need some help at this new little hospice in the Castro in San Francisco. Maitri, starting by Isan Dorsey, who was just a great being. And... Um, and so I went, and Isan had basically just op- had a zendo in the Castro, and the AIDS epidemic began, and he just opened it up to care for people because it was needed. It was very simple for Isan. It's just people who are sick, we'll take them in and take care of them. And so I came, met Isan, and he took me in to meet the first person who was staying there. And I went into this room, and there was J.D. And J.D., they were saying, wouldn't last much longer. And J.D.'s lying in bed, and his hands are flapping like this, and he's really out of it. And he can barely talk. And he can, you know, he can make some sense, but he's really out of it. And he's mostly, I spent four or five hours just holding his hands from flapping and caring for him a little bit. And J.D. would whisper some things at times. He'd say, could you get me some water? You know, and I'd get a little cup of water, and you take a straw, and you hold your finger on the top, and you take a little water and put some drips in a person's mouth. And it's very slow and careful. There's no emergency at that point. You just want to care for the person. And I remember cutting up, he wanted some strawberries, cutting them up small and feeding him strawberries. And then at one point he said, could, could, you, could you move, shift me a little, move me. And I'd had no training. And, um, and it's not easy to move someone who's bedridden. It actually takes a little, it's good to have some training so you don't hurt yourself, hurt them. But I kind of did my best and I moved J.D. around and I said, uh, how does that feel, J.D.? 
And then J.D., just like this, he said, it feels like I'm God and you're a saint. And I just went, whoa. <laughs> I, just, I thought, he could be right. You know? <laughs> Who knows? Oh. J.D., he was great. And I have to tell you, J.D. was like this phenomenal hospice case because he got way better. He ended up leaving the hospice. It was a great story. And he, he lived a number of years uh, that nobody expected. It was wild. Mm. Our vulnerability. Rilke said, ultimately, it's on our vulnerability that we depend. Mm. It's really the doorway. Mm. So Jijo sat with his vulnerability, his illness, his dysentery, for seven days. And we begin to enter the theme of awakening. Jijo had an experience. Here's the experience again, to refresh your memory. (coughs) One night he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight. Have you ever had that experience? Being outside where it's totally still and the snow is everywhere and the moon is full. And he felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. Maybe no self doesn't mean it goes away. Maybe it gets so big that the entire universe is too small to contain who you are. So this is entering the experience of freedom from the known. And it's really entering a world where our normal language fails us. Entering the world of what I call the mythopoetic. And you hear it in Jijo's language. He's describing something that's indescribable. And this experience, or this knowing, or this awakening can be amazing, or awesome, or simple, or plain can be extraordinary or extraordinary in its ordinariness. So I thought I'd just read to you a few poems that express people's awakenings, people's understandings. This is from Dogen. Very simple. Midnight. No waves, no wind. The empty boat is flooded with moonlight. And when you hear the poems, hear it with your mind and your heart and your body. EQ, my rogue friend, who started meditating when he was six, he says, For 20 years I was in turmoil, seething and angry. 
but now my time has come. The crow laughs, an arahat, an awakened one, emerges from the filth, and in the sunlight a jade beauty sings. Or from Yeshe Tsogol, who was the foremost woman practitioner in Tibetan Buddhism. She said, listen, O brothers and sisters, you who have mastered the teachings, if you recognize me, the queen of the lake of awareness, who encompasses both emptiness and form, know that I live in the minds of all beings who live. We are not two, yet you look for me outside. When you find me within yourself, your own naked mind, that single awareness will fill all worlds. Then the joy of the one will hold you like a lake. Its fish with gold-seeing eyes will grow many and fat. The queen of the lake of awareness who encompasses both emptiness and form. Know that I live in the minds of all beings who live. And then the Buddha. Did you know the Buddha wrote poems a lot? It's not so well publicized. But he'd write, there's a whole one book, it's called the, the text or the book of inspired utterances. So there'll be little short teaching stories that each one ends with a poem that the Buddha wrote. And so he's writing about nirvana or nibbana. He says, where neither water nor yet earth, nor fire nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. When a sage has come to know this for herself through her own experience, then she is freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from pain. Where neither water nor earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold, the unconditioned he's pointing to. So Jijo wrote his poem. He says, radiant, spiritual, what is this? This is the great Zen question. You know, there's a story that after the first or second three-month course at Barry, they had a Zen teacher who came right near the end. And he got up. People have been sitting and walking three months in silence, you know, day in, day out. He gets up on stage. He says, three months meditation, waste of time. What is this? (laughs) What is this moment? 
Stephen Batchelor, who writes beautifully on mindfulness practice uh, and Buddhist teaching. There's a book I'll recommend. It's called um, Buddhism Without Belief, Without Beliefs. He said, remember that Adrian was, uh, excuse me, Adrian was talking last night about the three characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And Stephen talks about them um, in these terms. He calls them impermanence, suffering, selflessness. He calls it dynamic, dynamism, precariousness, and uh, transparency is how he talks about them. So he says, repeatedly embracing the dynamic, precarious, and selfless flow of existence, which is what we've been doing here. Repeatedly embracing the dynamic, precarious, and selfless flow of experience gradually erodes this ingrained conviction of our separate existence. To enhance this further still, it helps to let go not just of attachment to a fixed self, but to all views that confine and fix experience. This can be achieved by recognizing that however we describe it, even as dynamic, precarious, transparent, even if we describe it as a Nietzsche, Dukkha, and Anatta, what is happening is utterly mysterious. So Jijo says, radiant spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. It's only here. It's only in your lived presence that awakening happens. The spatula by the toilet, shines with light. What a a great line. It's everywhere. There's nowhere that it isn't. Kabir puts it this way. He says, when the eyes and the ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. When we're here and awake in a moment, it's everywhere. And then the the great kicker here. After all, it was just me all along. It's so obvious that we miss it. Oscar Wilde said, the final mystery is oneself. And the wise ones say, you are what you seek. After all, it was just me all along. We don't get Buddha nature. Sorry, we are Buddha nature. Buddha breathing, Buddha laughing, Buddha suffering, even Buddha judging, Buddha confused, 
when Suzuki Roshi was dying, he, he told his students, he said, if I'm suffering, it's okay, it's just suffering, Buddha. Ajahn Chah, Jack Cornfield's teacher, put it this way. He says, in our search for the Dharma, Dharma means the truth, in our search for the truth, we search too far. We overreach, overlooking the essence. The Dharma is not out there to be gained by a long voyage and viewed through a telescope. It's right here, nearest to us, our true essence, our true self, no self. When we see this essence, there are no problems, no troubles, good, bad, pleasure, pain, light, dark, self, other, are empty phenomena. If we come to know this essence, we die to our old sense of self and become truly free. Let's sit for a minute. Neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. When a noble one has come to know this for herself, through her own experience, then she is freed from form and formless, freed from pain freed from pleasure. 